0: I read about a missionary couple this past week who once brought some African ministers over to the U.S. to uh, visit and go to this big meeting. And and during their free time, these visiting ministers, they wanted to go shopping and look around a bit because they'd never been over here. And and so even though they were in a very small town for this meeting, the missionary figured that some of them may, you know, get lost. And so he he gave each of them his phone number just in case of an emergency. He said in less than an hour... His phone started to ring, and one of the ministers just said, I'm lost. The missionary just, you know, told him, he said, lay your phone down, you go to the street corner, find out the names of the two streets, and then come back and tell me. He said a few seconds later, the African minister returned, and he just declared, I'm at the corner of walk and don't walk. (laughs) Now, last week, as we studied chapter three of the story that we're going through this year, we saw that uh, God used Joseph as his tool to save his people. And right at the end last week, we see that Joseph, he had his family moved to Egypt, and and they lived there alongside the Egyptian people in peace. But then as we jumped right into chapter 4 this past week, this was last week's homework to to get ready for today, this was Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 17, we see that the peace soon ceased to exist. We read in chapter 1 of Exodus, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So with Joseph now gone, there is no one to speak up on behalf of, of the Israelites. And so what we see here is they become an enslaved people that are forced to work in harsh conditions. Much like those African ministers visiting the U.S., and a lot of times even for us in our own lives, the Israelites suddenly found themselves lost and directionless. They were essentially at the corner of walk and don't walk. And the hope that they once felt in their futures was suddenly ripped away from them by an evil king. Now, if you've been studying along with us, each week through this series and the story, you can probably guess that God, in his upper story, is preparing to save his people through an unlikely character, because that's what we've seen each week so far. And we've also seen each week that we know that God is not going to break his promise of this great nation through Abraham and, and his offspring, and so this is when we see Moses suddenly enter the spotlight of the story. Now to begin his life, we read that Moses is really very fortunate to even be alive because right as he was born, Pharaoh had decreed in uh, Exodus 122, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. So right at the beginning of Moses' life, we see that there's this, this evil Pharaoh who has taken over. He's attempting population control through the murder of thousands of baby boys. And, and in this situation, there's not much that the Israelites can do in any kind of, you know, form of resistance or they're going to be killed. And, and so what we see is Moses's mother takes drastic steps in, in order to try and, and save her son. In Exodus 2, we see, it says, but, but she, when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it um, among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, because it doesn't really tell us this explicitly, but but Moses' mother was very wise. She was very smart in what she did here, because she wasn't just simply hiding Moses uh, in the water. What she was doing is she actually knew the time that Pharaoh's daughter went to the river to bathe. And so just as Moses' mother had hoped, Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket, they go and check it out, and they find a baby in it. Now, the, the, the kind of the miraculous way that this plays out is, Uh, Pharaoh's daughter, she actually sends for Moses' mother to to nurse him until he's older. And then Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses as her own son. And and so Moses gets the privilege of being the Hebrew who grows up in the palace of the Egyptian king. Now, one very interesting thing that I found uh, as I was studying this this week is something to note uh, before we move on is that in the original Hebrew language, the word that was used to describe this tar-covered basket that Moses' mother placed him in is actually the very same word that was used when describing Noah's Ark in Genesis. And this is the only two places that it's found in the Bible to describe, you know, a boat. It was in Genesis and in Exodus. In other words, Moses' mother placed him in an ark. Now, most scholars agree that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible in some form or fashion, And so for the Israelites reading this story in Hebrew, Moses wanted them on purpose to connect to God delivering mankind from rough waters in Noah's day through Noah, and God once again delivering mankind from rough waters uh, of slavery in Moses' day through Moses. And so, you know, this is one of those really incredible connections within God's upper story that's easy for us to miss when we're just studying these stories as, as individual stories. All of these events that we have been reading this, this year are connected as they were part of God's plan with his, within his uh, grand story. And so we see that Moses, he grows up in the palace. He, he, he ends up you know maturing, becoming older. And, and one day, he decides to visit the land where his Hebrew people worked as slaves. And in the midst of this visit, while he's, he's there, he witnesses one of the Egyptian slave masters just mercilessly beating one of the, the Hebrew people. And so it tells us, looking this way and that and seeing no one, Moses killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And so it tells us, then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Now, it really doesn't tell us exactly what led Moses to kill the Egyptian here I mean we know why he did it but we don't know what if this was like blind rage or, or if this was just simply a refusal to do nothing in the face of of injustice we we really don't know it seems that his heart was in the proper place but the 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 action towards the injustice was wrong and, and so people found out very quickly it spread very quickly about what Moses had done And we read that word even got back to Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh attempts to kill Moses, and Moses is forced to flee to this foreign land called Midian. Suddenly Moses is now separated from his Israelite family and his Egyptian family alike. Everyone that he has ever loved is back home. They're just suddenly gone. The palace life of luxury that he once knew was traded in for this lowly job of shepherd in a foreign land. And so we we see during this time, he he does get married, he's blessed with a son, but for 40 years, there's really not much going on in Moses' story. For for 40 long years, he remained in hiding as a lowly shepherd. And then suddenly, one day, we see that God brings Moses back into the spotlight of the upper story that's unfolding. And you know, it's really incredible. God never forgot Moses. God never forgot the The misery of the Israelites in slavery. What we really can't see, or what they couldn't see, is that God was at work the entire time, even in the midst of those 40 long years. The people in their lower stories, they may not have known it at the time, but God was still unfolding his plans. And as we have said each week, as we have gone through this series, this is still true for us today. God's story is still unfolding right now, and and He is inviting each of us to be a part of His story, but I think the hardest part for us is keeping the faith even when God's timing doesn't line up with our timing, and we've seen this again and again throughout these stories, you know, doing something for 40 years like Moses was, and then having God come along one day calling us to change everything, that's going to be scary, and yet God expects us to overcome such fears and to obey Him in those moments, Now we see that for Moses, he was out with the flocks of of sheep one day when he noticed a bush over in the distance that's on fire, but this bush is not burning up. And so it tells us as he approaches the bush, God's voice starts to call to Moses from it, and then God says to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering." Now when you see this, at first glance, Moses was probably you know, pretty pleased to hear that God was, was going to, to save Israelites, that he, he hadn't forgotten about them. And, and I mean, you know, the last time we had seen Moses in Egypt, he had murdered a man in defense of the, the injustice that was taking place. And, and so at first, you know, his first thought was probably, man, this is great, it's about time that, that these Egyptians got what was coming to them But then Moses' attitude changed very quickly, we see, when God told him that it was he, Moses, who would go on behalf of God. God says, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And so this is that that conversation that we see where Moses proceeds to make every single excuse in the book for why he is not qualified to lead God's people. And so he says to God, what if I don't know how to answer their questions? And God tells Moses, tell them, I am who I am, sent you. Well, Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me when I tell them the message? And so we see God gives Moses three signs to show the people that this is indeed God sending this message. The first sign is for Moses to throw his staff on the ground and it will become a snake. And once he picks that, that snake up, it will become a staff again. And God says, if they don't believe the first sign, the second sign is for you to take your hand and put it inside your cloak when you remove it, it will be covered in leprosy. If you put it back in and take it out again, the leprosy will be removed. And then God says, if they don't believe the first two messages, go and take some water from the Nile River, pour it on the ground, and it will return to blood. And so God gives Moses these three different miraculous signs to show the people. But what we really see right here is that God silences Moses' argument that he's not qualified. Every time Moses says, "Listen, God, I'm inadequate." I am, I'm not qualified to do what you're asking of me. God responds by saying, well, this isn't about you, Moses. This is about me. God says to him, it doesn't matter if you are really qualified or not, Moses, because I'm going with you, and I'm the one who is enabling you to do my works. And, and you know, this is one of those lessons that is important for each of us to keep on our minds and on our hearts as we go through life. God does not call us to do something without enabling us to do it. God is not going to call us to do something and then abandon us so that it's impossible to to accomplish. This was you know true thousands of years ago and this is still true today. And and so we see even after God silences all of these initial excuses from Moses, Moses unveils his deepest insecurity as his final excuse. And, And so Moses says to God, "Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech." and tongue. And the Lord says to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. So again, God silences Moses' excuse. And so once Moses sees that God is not going to accept any of these many excuses, he just straight up tells God in this moment, please send someone else. you, You think about that. I think Moses sounds a lot like us in here today a lot of times, doesn't he? But at this response, it says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And so God basically tells Moses to sum it up. He says, listen, you're going, and I'm going with you, and I'm also going to invite your brother Aaron along to speak for you, so you don't have that excuse anymore. So grab your staff and get ready to depart. Now, you know, when we read this, this whole conversation between God and Moses, this part of Moses' story, I think this should really convict us to be more obedient and trusting uh, with, uh, when God prompts us to do something for him. I mean, you notice that God doesn't pat Moses on the back uh, in this moment for being humble in the midst of these excuses, and, and that's because insecurity is not humility. Insecurity is actually pride. Uh, insecurity makes us focus on ourselves, and so we've got to be careful that we do not insult God by telling him that he made a mistake by choosing us. Because when we do that, that is just simply our pride talking. Listen, the Bible is very clear that for every single one of us, God has a plan for us. Now, I think one of the really big issues, and it's something I struggled with for a while, and I think a lot of Christians struggle with this, is, is we often run into issues when we're trying to figure out what God is calling us to. And I think what we do is we wait for God to speak to us through a burning bush, and we're waiting to hear this grand calling. And the reality is that doesn't happen for the majority of people. In fact, most Christians, I don't think, receive a grand calling to be God's representative to save entire countries from slavery. Beyond that, very few Christians are called to, to full-time ministries or Uh, you know, as preachers or as missionaries and and stuff like that, I think very few Christians are called to start, you know, massive nonprofit organizations. For many, the calling is to raise your children to love the Lord. For many, the calling is to share the gospel with those that you encounter in the workplace or at school or, you know, on the sports field or wherever you are. Uh, For many, the calling is to volunteer with those in need or to volunteer at church in various ways. Listen, no calling is greater or lesser than another because they are all there to build up God's kingdom and every single one of us has a calling. But what that means is that it is essential that we each take up our callings, though. There's no more, you know, excuses for why I or or we can't do certain things. And, And to put it quite simply, every Christian's true calling is to share the gospel wherever they are both in the way that they live their life and through telling others about Jesus. Every single one of us are called to that. That is our calling. I read about one king. He grew tired of the pressures of being a monarch, and so he made application to be accepted at a local monastery, and he wanted to spend the rest of his life there. And the leader of the monastery responded. He said, Your Majesty, you do understand that, that this pledge is one of obedience. And he said, That's going to be hard for you because you've been a king. I understand, replied the king. The rest of my life, I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Well, then I'll tell you what to do, said the the leader of this monastery. He said, you go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. And you know, in that same way, that is true for us. We are to learn to be faithful and obedient to God wherever we are, because every single one of us have a job to do for his kingdom. That is Our true calling. And so for Moses and his calling, going back to Moses, we see that after God's anger burned against him, eventually Moses obeys God, and we see that he traveled to Egypt to face off with Pharaoh. Now again, remember, it has been 40 years since Moses has been in Egypt, since he had had fled to Midian, and so there's a new Pharaoh at this time, most scholars think. And most scholars believe that this new Pharaoh in charge was actually Pharaoh Tutmos the third. I guess that's how you say it. And they also believed that this would have been Moses's Egyptian half-brother. So basically, this was gearing up to be a very contentious family reunion. Moses, now an 80-year-old shepherd, and his biological Hebrew brother, Aaron, stand before the most powerful king on the planet, and they declare to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me, in the wilderness. Now, one important thing for us to understand is that the Pharaohs each believed that they were uh, deities, that they were gods in in some form. And so this was not a request that was taken well. And and so Pharaoh responds to them, well, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord that will not let Israel go. And then after that, he adds in, you know what, because you had the audacity to bring such a ridiculous request before me, I'm actually now going to make the Israelite slaves work twice as hard. And because of this, this turns the Israelites against Moses. They're not happy at their increased workload. But Moses doesn't give up under this immense pressure from all sides. And we read that there's this series of visits to which Moses, he he keeps going and visiting Pharaoh, and he declares every single time, the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And each time, it tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart, so God sends a new plague each time to punish Pharaoh uh, every single time. And so this keeps happening, and it becomes this big ordeal in, in Egypt. Now, before I move on, I kind of want to pause and, and just, you know, address the one big issue that a lot of people have with this story. I understand that some people get hung up on the fact that the Bible tells us that God hardened pharaoh's heart at various times and some people through the years uh, different you know bible scholars and stuff they've argued that this implies that we don't fully have free will Uh, but if you actually read this story if you actually study it and and see what it's telling us it tells us that pharaoh hardened his own heart to begin with in other words pharaoh could have released the israelites but he chose not to And, and so what we see is as a consequence of that God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart further as a punishment essentially for his disobedience to God and so that God's uh, glory would be in full view for all to see. So uh, Pharaoh had uh, free will as any of us do, he just chose not to. Now within these plagues there's a bunch of them and the first plague is the Nile River is turned to blood and in this case it kills all the fish, the Egyptians have a hard time finding water, Uh, But Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so then we see that there were frogs everywhere, and then there were gnats everywhere. Then we see that there were these swarms of flies. Then all the Egyptian livestock died, followed by the Egyptian people being covered in in painful boils that were um, not curable. Next, we see that God sent a hailstorm to kill everything that was not under shelter. And then right after that, God sent a plague of locusts to eat up any of the living plants that had remained after the hailstorm. After that, the, the ninth plague, God sent a plague of darkness for three days that only affected the Egyptians. And, and the Bible actually tells us this darkness was a darkness that could be felt. So, so essentially, I guess, they were blind for three days. Now, when we look at each of these plagues, and you can see them up on the wall, it's important for us to understand that the Egyptians worshipped many gods, and their gods were related to, to different parts of nature. So they had, you know, like like many um, societies that have had multiple gods, they had a god for the sun and water and and different stuff like that. And and so within each of these plagues, as we look at them, uh, every plague that God sends, he is actually displaying his supremacy over all of their false gods in Egypt. God is showing the Egyptians essentially that their gods were nothing, that they were not powerful in any way, shape, or form. And, And at the same time, God was also reminding the Israelites... But he had not forgotten them. God kept saying within each of these plagues, he kept saying, and they will know that I am the Lord. And they will know that I am the Lord. And he, he kept uh, uh, emphasizing that within each of these plagues. And, and so basically, God did all of this not only to punish Egypt, but also to show them his authority over all of their false gods. He wanted them to understand he was the one true God. And so again, as I said, after each of these instances, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and after this ninth plague of darkness, Pharaoh tells Moses, he says, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Now, that sounds like a pretty terrifying threat coming from such a powerful king. He could basically do whatever he wanted at this time, but, but God is not done with Pharaoh yet, and, and so it says he sends Moses one last time to declare one final plague. We read it, so Moses says, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so this plague comes true just as Moses says. And then every firstborn Egyptian dies. Every home in Egypt is rocked by this plague. And I mean, you really think about, think about what this plague would mean for, for our families and even our church today. Real quick, just raise your hand if you are a firstborn. I mean, you look around the room at all the firstborns, we would all be gone, right? And for our family in particular, my immediate family, Mackenzie and I are both firstborns. Asher is our firstborn, so, so Titus would just be orphaned. I mean, you think about how this is going to affect all of the many uh, different families in Egypt. I mean, if they didn't believe it before, every Egyptian still alive at that time would believe in the power of God after that. So after this 10th plague, we see that Pharaoh finally relents. He allows Moses to to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and so the Exodus begins for millions of Israelites as they taste freedom for the first time in the Bible tells us 430 years. That's how long they had been enslaved. Now once they were gone, I imagine that suddenly Egypt was very quiet. And in the midst of that silence, I think that's probably when Pharaoh suddenly realizes what he has done. He had just gotten rid of their entire workforce, so suddenly nothing is going to be able to get done, and their entire you know, system as it was set up is going to collapse. And so we read that, that Pharaoh hardens his heart yet one more time. It says he loads up more than 600 chariots, and remember that the chariot was like the army tank of the Bible days, and he commands thousands of soldiers to accompany them, and then he himself leads them out in order to try to capture the Israelites again. Now, for the Israelites, the the millions of Israelites, they've been slowly just marching around uh, together, and they're following every direction that that God is leading them, but it's slow moving because it's such a large group of people. And suddenly, they find themselves with the Red Sea in front of them and the entire Egyptian army behind them. Now, obviously, in that moment, panic ensues, and they really start lashing out at Moses. They're like, what have you done, Moses? We should have just remained slaves. But this is when we see that the, the, the man of insecurity in in inadequacy. The the shepherd who struggles with public speaking, he, he says this with confidence. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And this is when we see one of the, you know, the most iconic miracles in all of the Old Testament take place. And this is when God tells Moses to raise his staff and, and the Red Sea parts on both sides. And we read that the Israelites crossed over on dry ground. In the midst of, of all of this, God uses several other miracles that we read about to slow down the advance of the Egyptian army. And once the Israelites had gotten a a safe distance across, God released the Egyptians to, to follow in behind them. And then we read, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. And so finally, Israel is free from slavery. It tells us in Exodus 14, and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. What we might not realize is in the 430 years of slavery, most of the Israelites had had forgotten God. But God had never forgotten them in that big, long span of time. And and so we see that God saved them, and he once again was worshipped as their God. Now really, when we look at this story of the Exodus, and we take a step back, and we look at, how God's upper story has been playing out throughout all of this. I think we should notice that God knew what he was doing when, you know, back months in advance when he chose Moses to lead the people. You think about it, Moses had all of these excuses to throw at God, but when you actually look at Moses' lower story in more of a practical sense, if you were to, to look at his resume of his life up to that point, he was actually the perfect fit for the job. Moses had grown up in a palace with access to the most sophisticated education at his time. He had learned strategy and leadership That he, as he had you know, witnessed the politics play out in the kingdom. He learned how to lead large groups of people by witnessing how Pharaoh had done it. And so basically, God had been preparing Moses for precisely this moment in history. And so Moses says, I'm not qualified, but, but God says, yes, you are, if you will just put your trust in me. I will deliver the Israelites out of captivity through you. And you know, God says the very same thing to us today. When we feel unworthy or, or when we feel inadequate, God says, "You just do as I say and you put your trust in me." You see what we learn from this is, is that God delivers from slavery to freedom. Now, I think this is the obvious lower story of the narrative of Moses. God hates oppression and injustice. And so you look at our lives individually, us for t- uh, look at us today, different sins can, can become our masters. We can, you know, become enslaved by different sins. But God is the one who can free us from that slavery as well. And you look at Moses, he was enslaved by the fear of, of uh, he was enslaved by the sin of fear. And, and then God was able to help him overcome that. And, and so we see that God delivers from slavery to freedom, and then God also delivers from despair to hope after that. I mean, the fact that God wants to set us free is actually the upper story to begin with. His deliverance, it gives us freedom right now, but it also gives us hope for our future in heaven. So God delivers from despair to hope, and then finally we see that God also delivers from death to life. I mean, you look at this story, the Israelites were not just set free and then left alone. They were set free so that they could truly live as God's people. They had a purpose. And similarly, when we read in John 10.10 in the New Testament, Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. Listen, we can have life to the fullest because Jesus has a purpose for us also. There's a lot of symbolism that is buried within the, the Exodus story that, that it connects God's salvation of Israel back then in the Old Testament with our eventual salvation uh, through Jesus Christ. As I mentioned at the beginning, just briefly, God saved mankind from wo- uh, rough waters through Noah and an ark, and then God eventually saved Israel from rough waters through Moses and an ark when he was a baby. And, and what we might miss in the midst of each of those incredible miracles is that both of them were actually leading up to Jesus Christ becoming the ark that would save us from the rough waters that we face today. In fact, scholars believe that that when the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground as a means of salvation back then, that actually points directly to our salvation in Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism today. And we read as much in the New Testament. I mean, you look at these connections and how beautiful is it that God weaves all of these things together from the Old Testament and the New Testament and today, and he's just showing us his grand story that is being played out the entire time. I mean, I, I find that very incredible. It always blows my mind when I see these, these connections. Now, one important detail that I skipped within the story was why the death angel did not kill any of the firstborns of the Israelites, but, but all of the Egyptian firstborns died. And I actually skipped this detail because I'm going to use it to lead us directly into our communion time this morning. Now, the night that the death angel was set to ascend on Egypt, God commanded the Israelites to make unleavened bread to eat because they were not going to have time to allow the bread to rise. God also commanded each of them to kill a lamb and to spread the the blood around their their doorframe so that this would be a sign to the angel, the death angel, that the angel would pass over their houses. And so that's what they did, and that's why the Israelites, they didn't lose their firstborns. And and so for the Jewish community, this actually became known as the Passover meal, and this was celebrated each year as like a a holiday of sorts to commemorate God's salvation of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. The Jews today, they still partake of this same uh, Passover celebration 3,500 years later right now. And, And so obviously we are not Jews, so how does this matter to us today? Well, in the New Testament, we see that it is the same Passover meal that Jesus was eating with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed before he was crucified. And that night at the Passover meal, we read that Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. And then Jesus took the Passover cup and he said, this is my blood. And so essentially in that moment, Jesus was bridging their Jewish tradition of the Passover that they had adhered to for thousands of years, and he was bridging that to the coming of the new covenant that was about to happen in his blood. Jesus was showing them that that just as Israel had been saved by many lambs so long ago, he was about to become the final Passover lamb for all mankind. He was paying for all their sins and our sins alike. Let the praise team want to be making their way back up. Listen, 1 Corinthians 5 7, it is very clear. It says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. And so just like Israel back then, we too are saved by the blood of the Lamb. Through Jesus, we are freed from the bondage of sin. Through Jesus, we, we are given hope in the future. And through Jesus, we are able to live life and live life to the fullest. Listen, this is why we we follow the first century Christians in the partaking of communion every single Sunday in the Christian church. We take the bread that represents Christ's body, as he said, and we drink the juice representing his blood to make sure that we remember every single week the reason we can have hope. It started all the way back in that time in Egypt, and then Jesus fulfilled it in the New Testament, and so we still take it in remembrance of him today. So think on those truths as you partake of the emblems today, and thank God for sending us his son to be our sacrificial lamb, and After that, after communion, we will sing one more song of praise, and if anyone has a decision on their heart, you come and sit on this front row, and we'll talk about it, but make that decision today.